chapter 14. Frank isn't here. Um, all right, Revelation chapter 14. Now we've been in, in Revelation chapter, oh, you didn't get a study sheet when you came in. Why don't you raise your hand and we'll get one of those for you. I got some people down here in the front uh, as well. But we've been in Revelation chapter 14 for, for quite a while, and yet by the same token, we haven't been in Revelation chapter 14 for some time. Uh, we've spent, as you can see at the top of your study sheet, eight weeks just in, in chapter 14, but uh, it's actually been a month since we've studied this together. Uh, the last time that we actually studied Revelation was June 27th. That's mind-boggling to me because that seems like that was yesterday, but uh, we had two weeks where the fellows were in Russia, and then last week we had the reflections from Russia, and so it's been a it's been a solid month. And, and chapter 14, y'all, is is really a very key place in the book of Revelation for us. Uh, it's, it's a key book because, or a key chapter because it's in the Bible. But uh, and, and I guess as as it, if I would have been just stepping back from the book of Revelation and, and looking at chapter 14, dealing with 144,000, I probably would not have seen uh, initially the significance of this and what I believe God was wanting to do with this passage in our church. Uh, and yet I, I believe that as we look back over our shoulder in the, the whole study of the book of Revelation, that this may well be one of the, the key places where God did his work in, in our midst and I, I want to make sure, a, after a month of not being in here, that we haven't missed what God wants us to get. And I, I'll just tell you, it, it is real easy to miss a lot of things when you go to church. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it, it, you know what our attention span is? It, it's, it's short. And even when we're really working and all of that, sometimes it, things just come so fast that it's hard to get all of it. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes it's like trying to get a, you know, a drink of water out of a fire hydrant. Man, you get a lot, but there's just a lot that's going on beyond, beyond you. And so this morning, I, I want to just make sure that we're getting what we need to get from Revelation chapter 14. So before you get all, you know, wide-eyed and fancied about moving on into the verse 6, this other angel flying in the midst of heaven with the everlasting gospel... Uh, let's let's just make sure we're getting what, what God wants us to get here from Revelation chapter 14. Now, you can also see at the top of your study sheet, we've been 94 Sundays to get us to this place where we are here in, in chapter 14. I, I wish that with every person that's in this room, I wish I could just fill your mind with everything that the Lord's taught us in 94 Sundays. Obviously, I can't do that. Yeah, I would if I could. But I, I do want to make sure that we're all working off of the, the same page, and this will be good for, I think, all of us, just to have some, some reminders of some things. Uh, the book of Revelation is, a, it is a, an intense, intense book. Uh, it's very technical, very doctrinal, very prophetic, and very exciting, to be quite honest with you. But I'll tell you what, it's a great place to lose your neck spiritually. You can very easily, unless you follow the principle of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 of rightly dividing the word of truth, it's a great place to move yourself into false doctrine. 
And, and just like when you're, when you're uh, and I talked to the, the, the men's class this morning about when you're wanting to get somewhere, it's not just enough to get the map and say, here's where I want to go. The first thing you do when you get that map out is you've got to find out what? You've got to find out where you are on that thing. And if you're ever going to get there, you've you got to know that. Now listen, in the book of Revelation, before you ever even embark into the study of this thing, you better understand some things about who you are, about what you are, about where you are. And that's where we're going to begin this morning, seeking to identify those things. First of all, let's talk about what we are. We are church-age saints. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 10 and, and 22, what God lets us know is that we are now presently living in the dispensation that is called the church age. What that really means is that in this period of time, God is accomplishing His plan through an institution that He loved and died for that is called the church. That's who we are. And so when we go to the Word of God, we've got to make sure we understand that we are not the nation of Israel. We are not the Jews. We are not the 144,000. We've got to make sure that we understand who we are, what we are. We are church-aged saints. Next, who we are. We are Laodiceans. Now, if you're new to our study in the book of Revelation, you probably don't have a clue as to what a Laodicean is. It's a word that you find in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, in a whole passage where God begins to to take us on a little journey to show us who we are in this period of time. In Revelation 2 and 3, God writes seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. They were real churches. And yet, placed into the context of the whole of the book of Revelation, what we begin to understand is that those seven letters represent seven periods of church history. We are now living in the seventh period of church history. In other words, we are now living in the, the last period of church history. We are a group of people that would be referred to biblically as Laodiceans. It's a key word that we're going to be using several times throughout the course of, of our study th this morning. But we are Laodiceans. And in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, it begins to give a description of us. And I, I just got to tell you, it's a real bleak one. What God says is that we think spiritually we're rich and increased with goods and we have need of nothing. And God says, but the real read on you is that you are poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. In other words, we think one thing is true of us. And Jesus says that the, really the exact opposite is what is true of us. But we are Laodiceans, the best of us and the worst of us. And then where we are. Again, this is... Uh, just so key, I think, in understanding where we're moving today and, and the things that the Lord wants to highlight for us. We are living in the last hours of the last days of church history. We, we won't take the time to, to go through all the proof of this and how we know this, but in approximately 1900, we moved into the last period of church history. We moved into the Laodicean church period. Folks, it's been about a hundred years and through everything that God said that we ought to be looking around and seeing in the very last hours of the last days, we look around us and we see those things taking place. So let's understand this morning some things about where we are. First of all, we're church-age saints that are Laodiceans, which think they're better than they are, and we are right now living in the very last hours of the last days of church history. Now, in chapter 14, we're dealing with a group of people 
that is called the 144,000. Now let's talk about who they are. They are a very special group of tribulation saints. They are a very special group of tribulation saints. Now there's, as we saw in Revelation chapter 7, there are going to be tribulation saints from every tribe and tongue and kindred and people and nation. Okay, there's going to be a lot of them. But this group, the 144,000 is a very special group, a very select group of tribulation saints. And we found in Revelation chapter 7 that they are 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's where we come up with the 144,000. 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and 12,000 times 12, of course, is 144,000. But what are they? The 144,000, they are, a, are God's special servants of evangelization in the tribulation period. Now you see, at the rapture of the church, which is the event that we're, nec- we're looking for next, that's when all of the believers in the church age are removed from this planet, the Bible says, in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. Now, once we're removed, if that were to take place today, there'd be a lot of Bibles around, but there wouldn't be no witnesses of the gospel because all of the people that embraced the gospel are out of here. The 144,000 are a special group because they're going to be evangelized by the Lord Jesus Christ much the same way that the Apostle Paul was. And this is stuff that we've covered in detail in in weeks gone by. But that's what makes them so special. But once those people have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, this 144,000, they become, in the tribulation period, the seven years of tribulation, they become God's special servants of evangelization And they will go, literally, into all of the world and fulfill the great commission that the Lord gave to us in this dispensation that we are failing so miserably at. But they're going to do it. And and that's what makes this group of people so special. That's who and and what they are. But as I began to to study Revelation chapter 14 and was asking God to show me just what it is that he was wanting to, to teach us as a church as we went through this thing, What I began to see is that the characteristics, that's the word you're looking for right there, the the characteristics of the 144,000 that he highlights here in Revelation chapter 14, they provide for us a very definite application of challenge to those of us that are living in the church age as we seek to be what God wants us to be in the last hours of this dispensation. you have that? What, 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 what I began to see as I'm studying this thing is that the characteristics that God said is true of, of this group of special believers in the tribulation period have a very special application for us because the characteristic that God, characteristics that God highlights of this group of people are the very things that we can go to the New Testament and see that are to be true of us in this dispensation, and, and the thing that's, that's unique about this is the things that we see that are characteristic of them in the first five verses just happen to be some of the areas where we are so miserably weak in the last hours of the last days as Laodiceans in this dispensation that's called the church age. And so as I began to see all of that, I began to, to see that the Lord wanted us to just spend some time here looking at the example of this group of believers so that we can make some application in some areas that not only Laodiceans are weak, but we as a church 
are very weak and as individuals are very weak. And the first thing that I felt like the Lord wanted us to learn from the 144,000, it's Roman numeral one on your study sheet, is the fact that there is visible evidence of their identification with the Lamb and His Father. And, and now I want, you to, I want you to listen at why this point is so important and especially important for those of us that are living as Laodiceans in the last hours of the day. The reason that this point, and it seems like just such a, you know, cute little way to get into the outline. There's visible evidence of their identification with the Father, and we're going to move into the fact that there is audible evidence of their relationship with the Father. You know, we've got the little cute outline going, but I'm just telling you, this is not just a cute outline. The reason, this number one, the reason that that is so important is that we are living at a time where there are literally millions of people who are claiming that they are identified with the Lamb and His Father. They are claiming that they have been born again, but the cold hard facts are, though they make this claim, there is no visible evidence of that identification in their lives. And if you want just a, a real simple biblical paraphrase of what the entire New Testament would say about that, it basically comes down to this. If your salvation is not evident by your life, then you ain't got it. Now that's, that's terrible English, but I'll tell you what, it's great theology. If your salvation is not evident by your life, the biblical statement about that would be the fact that you do not have it. If there is no fruit, chances are just about sure it's because there's no what there's no root I, you guys are right no relationships cool it just doesn't rhyme with fruit you know okay but, but, but it's a fact folks listen where there's no fruit it's evidence that there's no no root and, and you know again it, it's real easy for us to stand in here and champion that cause and make that statement but I'm telling you folks that's a it's it's a freaky thing because like I said there are millions of people in this country alone forget the whole world for a sec we're not talking about there's a handful of people out there that think they got it and they don't I'm talking about I, I believe there are millions and millions and probably a good number of people in this church who profess to know Him, who profess to be born again, but there's just no evidence of it in their lives. It's the Laodicean problem of profession without possession. It rhymes. You're going to get on to me here today. The Laodicean problem of profession without Possession and Paul talked about this back in the book of Titus and I'd like to ask you to turn back there if you would for just a second the book of Titus Chapter 1 Titus chapter 1 and look at verse 16 They profess that they know God but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. 
And as we've said over and over, now, now look at the verse, it's not the works that cause you to know God. You got that? The fact that you know God causes you to do the works, right? But I'm telling you, folks, listen, Titus 1.16 is a, is a perfect description of the Christianity of our day. People with their mouths professing that they know the Lord while the lives that they actually live are abominable or detestable to God. They live in disregard and disobedience to the Word of God and to all of the works that the Bible says that genuine salvation produces. They're absolutely void of. And yet, they think they're saved. And you see, that's what's so freaky about the thing. You see, if I've, if I've solved the math equation, I don't keep working the problem. But if I've come up with the wrong answer, I'm going to miss it on the test. And you see, there's a lot of people who think that they're saved, and because they think they're saved, they never do anything about their need for genuine biblical salvation. And they become inoculated to this thing. And, and, and now the truth is, it's not just a layout of seeing problem, okay? There have always been people over the last 19 and a half centuries or so who have made a profession of knowing Christ when they actually had no possession. But now listen, in Laodicea, in this period of time, it's more of a problem. And it's not more of a problem because, well, I'm a preacher and that's my read on the thing and that's what I think and that's what I say. No, the reason that I make that statement is because that's what Jesus told us that it was going to be like during the Laodicean period. Turn back just a couple of pages here to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and look with me at verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. In other words, very precisely, very dogmatically, very assuredly. Don't miss this. Okay, that's what he said. The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, Laodicea, if you will, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now, now listen, we could certainly make a case from that verse that the Bible says that the last days would be characterized by satanic cults and demon worship and, and a lot of the other things that we see that are going on around us. But I want you to know something. Notice what, what verse 1 says. Notice that these are Satan's seducing spirits. And they propagate the doctrine of devils. And one of the things, as you look back through the course of history, one of the things you begin to notice is that Satan's spirits and have been much more successful in moving people away from the faith, not by preaching about Satan and how wonderful it is to worship him and, and follow him. The seducing, the seducing spirits preach about Jesus. And how wonderful it is to know Him and to worship Him. Did you know that? That's what we're dealing with in the last days, y'all. Seducing spirits who are preaching doctrines of devils, but they do it in the name of Jesus. You see, that's why when, when we say some of the things that we say around here, people get so ruffled. And it just boggles my mind that some of you get ruffled by that. 
because the whole world going to hell in a handbasket. And, and, and we try to stand and say, hey, you better, you better watch who you listen to out there. And oh, buddy, if you ever name a name to warn people about those that you, oh, come on, you know, where's the love? Let me tell you something about us, y'all. We love the truth. We love Jesus. And anything that's against the truth, we hate! We absolutely hate it! You got it? We hate it. Chill, babe, chill. You're going to be all right. If it's not the truth, it is a lie. And the deal is, y'all, it comes in such a sweet package that you better watch out. Because in the last days, people are going to depart from the faith because there's going to be seducing spirits that are going to be preaching doctrines of devils. And so you better, you better be real, real careful out there. And some of you are going right now, well, I don't see anywhere in here where it says that they be preaching about Jesus. Well, work with me, okay? Let's go to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, for those of you that have been here for a long time, you, you know all about 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and the, the deal is, if you're going to be here for the next 10 years, if the Lord gives us that much time, we're going to have to constantly be coming back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Because there's going to be, hopefully, constantly a group of people that are in this church that have recently come to know the Lord Jesus Christ that are going to be very susceptible to false teachers that are out there preaching the name of Jesus and all of that deal. So now listen, if, you are, if you're already dialed into to chapter 11, this might be a great, great opportunity for you to say amen at a few little places here and, and, and help some of the newer brethren to our church to understand some very, very key lessons about what it means to be living in the Laodicean church period in the very last hours of the last days of church history. All right? Now, one of the things you need to make sure that you understand, okay, now, especially in light of what we just saw in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, that in the last days there's going to be seducing spirit, teaching doctrines of devils, and the Spirit speaks that very expressly. Okay, now, in light of that, something that you don't want to be unaware of in these last days is that Satan has ministers. And when I say that, now listen, I'm not talking about Anton LaVey out in San Francisco, and I'm not talking about uh, Marilyn Manson and, you know, come on, give me a break. I mean, you know, that, that, that's, that's child's play when it comes to Satan's ministers. I'm talking about Satan has ministers who pose as ministers of Christ, people with great personalities, people with winsome smiles. I'm talking people with, with charisma and, and what is so bizarre about this thing it is that Satan's key ministers even have a righteous life. And you see, all these things come together to just cause people that sit in their living room to fall in love with that God. It, it, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul's talking in, in verses 3 and 4, if you just look up there, he, he's talking about, in, in verse 3, check it out, he's talking about those who were trying to beguile these believers in Corinth. He's talking about people 
who are trying to corrupt their minds and move them away from the simplicity that is in Christ. And, and notice who these people are who were trying to do that. Who, who are these nasty, dirty people? Look down at verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, now watch this, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. They're deceitful. They're seducing spirits. And they're very deceitful because you can't see them coming. Because they transform themselves as ministers of Christ. It goes under the heading Christian. It goes under the, the heading ministry. And it looks so good. But there's a transformation. They're not really who they appear to be. Verse 14, and no marvel. I mean, why, why would this blow your hair back? Why would you be so surprised at this? For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if... What's the next two words? His ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness who don't hate anything. You see, and people, you come into a room like this, and people go, they hate lies. They hate something. You, you see, Laodiceans don't, they don't like the word hate. It's like you are love. And, and the deal is, it, if you love flowers, you got to hate weeds, right? You've you got to hate something if you love something. Okay? And, and, but these are ministers of righteousness. And you know what? What message it is that these satanically transformed ministers of righteousness preach? You know what it is? Not my opinion now. You know what it is? They preach about Jesus. And they preach about receiving the Spirit. They talk about accepting the gospel. And, and that's exactly what it says that they do in verse 4. They preach Jesus, they preach receiving the Spirit, they preach the Gospel. But there's a word that keeps popping up in verse 4 that you don't want to miss. In fact, if you haven't already done it, you need to just underline this word as it appears three times. It's the word another. Verse 4 says they preach another Jesus. Now listen, they don't, they don't, they don't tell you. Now I'd like to tell you about another Jesus. No, they're going to tell you all about Jesus. It's just not the one that's in this book. And they're going to talk about receiving the Spirit, and you'll come down and... And you can come on down and do your little thing, but when you're going to receive a Spirit. It's just not the one that this one talks about. It's another Spirit. And it's the Gospel, but notice the word in front of it. Another Spirit gospel. And the sad thing is, y'all, and I'm, I, I know that some of you don't like when we talk about these kind of things, but I just want to arrest your attention to the fact that we're living in a period of time where thousands and thousands of people are flooding into coliseums and churches, for that matter, including Baptist churches, and maybe especially Baptist churches. Churches and they listen to ministers using terminology that appears to be biblical 
and and they what they hear sounds like teaching that, that sounds like it's scriptural but as verse 4 says it's another Jesus it's another spirit it's another gospel and the problem is people come into those Colosseums they come into those churches and they respond to this Jesus they respond to this spirit that's operating they respond to this gospel and the experience that they have in this these meetings makes them think that they got something that the Bible says is not indicative of true biblical salvation and one of the results of this is we've got a bunch of people that are running around making a profession that they know him when in works they deny him and there is no visible evidence of his working in their life and you say well you know what man that oh, man that scares me I mean how do I know whether or not I, I got the real thing you know how you'll know you'll know because your life lines up with what the Bible says is true of someone who has the real thing and it comes down to you better make sure that you have followed what the Bible says and that the characteristics that God says is true of someone who knows him are true in your life and listen if those characteristics are not there I'm begging you would you just please come to the point where you humble yourself and just go back and get the real thing it's that simple but please if there is no visible evidence in your life don't just keep going on the fact well I prayed a prayer walked an on found a card if you really got it it's going to be visibly evident in your life and really what what the things we've been seeing from the testimony of, of the 144,000 what this has caused us to do we can go back to chapter Revelation 14 but what, what these things that we're seeing that is true of the, the 144,000 and causing us to, to do is go back and see what does the Bible say are the evidences of someone who has the real thing and, and again the first thing we've seen is the fact that if you really got it just like with the 144,000 there will be visible evidence of your identification with the lamb and his father now make sure that you make the connection here the 144,000 servants of our God during the tribulation period they have a seal and you see that in, in verse 1 it's the seal of having his father's name the end of verse 1 having his father's name written in their foreheads this is the visible evidence of their identification with the father I mean all you got to do is just look at these these believers in the tribulation period and it's obvious whose they are it's obvious that they're the Lord now in the dispensation in which you and I live the Lord has taken a seal that he's given to us as well now we're not sealed the same way the 144,000 are it make it a whole lot easier if if you just write his name on our forehead in this dispensation it's just not the way that God planned to do that but we nonetheless have a seal and that seal that we've received in this dispensation makes our identification with the lamb and his father just as visibly evident as the seal that the 144,000 have received Ephesians 1 13 calls this seal that we've received the seal of the Holy Spirit and 2nd Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19 says that that seal identifies us with the Lord now we don't have time to go there but listen to 2nd Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19 listen to it nevertheless the foundation of God standeth sure having this you remember the next word seal 
okay? The Lord knoweth them that are his. Now, who is it? It's all those that have a soul. Who's got the seal? The verse goes on. Let it depart from iniquity. It's real simple. Those who have been sealed in this dispensation are identified with the Father because their life is characterized by a continual, lifelong departing from iniquity. It's not that they don't ever sin. It's that in their life, you can just track it. They are constantly moving toward holiness. They're, as the Lord reveals sin in their life, they, they deal with that and they depart from iniquity. That's the seal of the Holy Spirit. It's the result. It identifies us with the Father. The Lord knows them that are His, having this seal. They depart from iniquity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, say that once we've been sealed by the Spirit of God, what happens to us, y'all, is we become living epistles, listen to it, known and read of all men. See, God recognizes us by the seal. But not only does God recognize our identification with Him by the seal, but so does everybody else. We're known and read of all men. And Peter, or <laughs> Peter, go figure. Paul explains there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, that the Lord doesn't, He doesn't write on our foreheads with ink. What it says that He does is He writes in our hearts. And what he, what he writes there, you know what it does? It changes our hearts. And you know what the result of a changed heart is? A changed, changed life. And listen, our identification with Him through what He's written on our life, through the seal of the, servant, uh, uh, of the, of the living God, what it does is it makes visible to all the fact that we're identified with him because he's not written it with ink, but because he's written it all over our lives. And folks, now listen. We've been talking about this, you know, not necessarily in this package, but we've been, we've been talking about this for some time now. And I, I think we need to come to the place to where we ask ourselves the very pointed question. Is my identification with the Lamb and his Father visibly evident by his seal in my life. Number one, does the Lord recognize me as His own, as 2 Timothy 2.19 says, because in my life, God sees that I am consistently departing from iniquity? Now again, hello. Some of you right now, that's not the characteristic of your life, and yet somehow, and I'm not exactly sure how it is, but without that characteristic in your life, some of you continue to convince yourself that you're saved, and I'm just telling you, the seal is going to make it evident to God. And it ought to be evident to you by being able to look at your life and see that there's departing from iniquity. Laodiceans profess that they know Him, and in works deny Him. So is it evident to God by the seal that He said He's looking for, that departing from iniquity? And number two, do men recognize you as a living epistle? I mean, are they able to look at your life and see that the Lord has definitely written something on your life that makes you stand out? Because of what He's written on your hearts, is it written through your life? And then we've seen that there was a second 
thing in the 144,000 that caused their identification with the Lamb and His Father to be visibly evident, not just through their seal, but also through their submission. That's letter C, the submission of the 144,000 servants of our God. And you should be in, still in Revelation chapter 14, I, I, I think. And would you drop down to verse 4, in the middle of the verse? Listen to what it says is characteristic of the 144,000. They, they follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. Listen, you cannot miss the identification of the, the 144,000 with the Lamb because they follow Him absolutely anywhere and everywhere He goes. Check them out. They, they don't have their own little thing going over here. The 144,000 are all about the Lamb. And, and what we've been seeing over the last several weeks now is that the Bible says that for those of us living in this period of time, in the Laodicean period, in the last period of the church history, what, what it says is that our identification with the Lamb is also going to be visibly evident by our submission. The fact that we too, just like the middle of verse 4 says, the fact that we too follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. The, the, the fact that, that we're now all about the Lamb and the fact that we don't still have our own little thing going over here. And what we begin to see is that Jesus' invitation to us was actually an invita invitation not to go to heaven when we die. Not to walk an aisle. Not to sign a card. His invitation to us was follow not a teaching. Not an experience. Follow me. Follow me. And, and it's opened up to us this whole thing about what it means biblically to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we look, first of all, at the presuppositions of following. Now, as, as, as I'm coming back into the, the study of the book of Revelation here in chapter 14, and knowing we had this little month off, and knowing we needed to collect ourselves, the thing that scared me is that some of you, because you've already filled in some of these little blankies in weeks gone by, that you're going to think, I already got this back. Let's forget about blanks right now on our study sheet. And let's understand that we really don't understand this until it's true in our lives. Okay? And that's why we're covering this ground. Again, it's, it, it's a different package, but it, it's the same ground because, you know what, Laodiceans? We are so enamored with Laodicea that sometimes it takes a long time for us to ta-da, to see the truth, for us to hear the truth. So, oh, please. You know, I, I, I didn't want to dish you a few minutes ago, but I, some of y'all, as we're trying to do this little introspection thing, about half the room's already on to the next sheet because you got your blanks filled in. And, and, and again, I'm not dissing you on, on, on that. I'm just wanting to make sure this morning before we move on in the next several weeks and God's got a bunch to show us from the 144,000 let us want to make sure that we're not just 
filling blanks in that we're really looking at our lives and understanding I am a Laodicean and I struggle in these very basic areas that we're talking about and I'm telling you this thing of following following the Lord when you really begin to see what that means biblically as Laodicean folks we, we probably ought to just spend the next six months on this very subject we won't but let's just take six months right now let's let's grab all we can get in about the next 60 minutes just kidding okay <clears throat> we look first of all at the, the presuppositions of following in, in other words the things that following just assumes or, or presumes and the first thing following presumes change okay now it's a simple point a lot of people still haven't caught it yet but if I'm being asked by the Lord Jesus Christ to follow him it presumes that he's not planning on standing still it presumes that he's moving somewhere and what we've seen as you just take the Bible is that the Lord Jesus Christ is moving to accomplish his plan for the universe the earth and each of our lives individually and as he is moving to accomplish his plan he invites us to follow him and the point that we tried to get all of us to see it's a simple point but the fact is I cannot stay where I am and follow him and if I follow him since I'm here and he's there and he's moving it means that there's going to be a change it, it has to sometimes that change is going to be a, a change of direction sometimes it's a change of location sometimes it's a change of mind a change of heart a change of attitude sometimes a change of plans or a change of lifestyle a change of priorities sometimes a change of friends sometimes a change of jobs sometimes a change of churches but any way you slice it following the Lord as he accomplishes his plan in the universe the earth in your life is going to necessitate change then secondly we also saw that following presumes submission you see if, if I'm following him then what it presumes is that I'm no longer going my own way it presumes that I'm no longer leading in my own life following my own desires and following my own passions and following my own pleasures and my own lust and following my own will you see I, I can't be following all of those things that have to do with me and at the same time follow him following presumes submission I'm not going that same way I used to go anymore I'm now I'm I'm following him he's leading not me I, I'm following him now and those are the presuppositions of, of following and again I think we need to stop now and just do some inventory because the fact is most of the people that are in this room this morning claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ but the sad fact is that there would be many of us that would be very hard-pressed to point to any change that the Lord's made in in our lives in, in who knows how long and many of us claim that we're following him when self and self-will are still leading us yeah we go to church 
but we're still being led Monday through Saturday through the, the fleshly pursuits that we had before we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, it is a contradiction of terms to say that I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ while I'm following self-will. The two are, are mutually exclusive. Are you a follower? Can you point to a, a consistent life of, of change because you're following Him? Can, can you point to, to the submission in your life and the death of, of, of self and self-will and now that you've been lost in, in following His will? And those are the presuppositions of following. Following presumes change and following presumes submission. And then we began to look at the prerequisites of following. And, and before we move into this, let, let me just tell you, you're, there's a lot of looking at the rest of the study sheet and going, how's he going to do this? I, I'm not planning on doing it, okay? So just be cool, okay? We, 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 we're going to be all right. We're not noon today. Thank you. Okay? But we began to look next at the prerequisites of following. And we saw in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34 that in this verse Jesus was giving an evangelistic invitation this is what he said whosoever will come after me okay there's your evangelistic invitation whosoever will come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me and what you begin to see is that the Lord Jesus Christ was not looking for a group of people to cart to heaven someday. He was looking for a group of people who would be his followers. And Jesus made it clear, very clear that if you will follow him, the first prerequisite is that you must deny yourself. And we saw that first of all, denying yourself means that I no longer trust in myself. It's being brought to a, a place of conviction being brought to a place of contrition uh, concerning our, our sinful condition. It, it's a complete realization that in me, that in my flesh dwells no good thing and that without Him I can do nothing. I cannot save myself. I cannot meet His standard. I cannot remove the spot and stain of sin in my life. I need Him. And then once we come to Christ on those terms, we saw that denying Christ takes on another meaning, and that is that I no longer live for myself. We could just as easily say it this way, I no longer love myself. And again, now, now oh, please, please hear this. This is, this is such an important point for those of us who are living in the last days. Because now listen, though ever since the fall of man, Though every man who has ever lived has always been selfish and self-centered and self-seeking, God tells those of us that are living in the last days, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, what He tells us is that in these perilous last days in which you and I live, what He tells us is that this self thing is going to be totally different. What He tells us is that self will exalt itself in men in a whole new level, God says, for men shall be, what's the next word? Lovers of their own selves. And we suggested that maybe the best way for us Laodiceans to comprehend what God's trying to tell us 
is that in the last days, men will have a, a cultish following of self. Self will be so exalted in men that, that men will literally worship self and will sacrifice and serve and love the God of self. So now listen. In light of what God said would be characteristic of men in these last days, when Jesus comes along and he says to those of us that are Laodiceans, listen, if you're going to follow me, the first prerequisite is that you deny yourself in light of what God said is true of us and our love of self. Let me just tell you, as Laodiceans, we better look long and hard at this thing because one of the greatest hindrances in receiving the Lord Jesus Christ is not coming on His terms and not coming to the point of denying self or after you have come to Christ, that love of self so dominating you that it's not apparent that you have denied yourself. And you see, this is, this is what is so devastating about the invitation to salvation that that most ministers today are, are giving, and we no doubt have, in years gone by, I'm sure we've been guilty of this uh, ourselves. But you see, the, the invitation of sal to salvation in Laodicea as a general rule is, are you looking for peace? Are you looking for joy? Are you looking for happiness and, and love and, and meaning in life? Listen, just step back from it for a second and, and listen to what's going on. We are asking that question to the most self-indulgent, self-consuming generation in the entire history of man. It's not my read. That's what Jesus said would be true of us. And we're asking, man, would you like peace, love, happiness, and meaning in life? And when you ask that to people who love themselves already, what is going to be their response? Sure, baby, because I want everything that's coming to me. And people are told that they can have that without ever facing the fact that in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the very first prerequisite, it's not mine, it's what Jesus said, the very first prerequisite is that you deny yourself. And so what we've got is people in these perilous last days, what they do is they add Jesus on to their already selfish existence and we tell them, because they said the right words of a prayer as if it were some magical formula or something, we tell them, now you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when in reality they're still followers of the same God they followed all their lives. The God of self. And the invitation that we give people to salvation is not the same one that Jesus gave. We maximize the benefits, and the benefits are wonderful. You will have peace. You will have love. You will find happiness. You will find meaning in life. But there is a cross to bear, and we haven't even started about that, that prerequisite. But the first prerequisite is that you've got to deny yourself. And the fact that you deserve to be happy, that you deserve to have love or peace or any meaning in life. You're brought to a point of, of contrition. And it leads to the Laodicean problem on your study sheet of rearranging 
without changing. Rearranging without changing. And, and it's kin to what we were talking about earlier, the Laodicean problem of profession without possession. But, but what happens in Laodicea is, is people, now listen real carefully, is people simply trade the pursuit of self in the kingdom of this world to the pursuit of self in the kingdom of God. But in the final reality, nothing's changed. It's still the pursuit of self. There's been no real changing, just a, a rearranging that people equate with salvation. When all that's really happened is rather than self finding its promotion in the world, self then finds a new place to promote itself. And it just happens to be the church. And you see, it's a whole lot easier in this arena because, number one, the pond isn't as big, and number two, it doesn't take near as much savvy. Because, you see, in order for self to come into the church and find a way to be praised and honored and lauded and receive glory, you know, really all you got to do is just learn to speak Christianese, and you can learn that in, you know, about four easy lessons, you know, praise the Lord and amen and good things like that. All you got to do is just learn to speak the right language, appear to know a few things about the Bible, appear to be humble, and get a few other self-seeking people to pray the same prayer that you prayed. And buddy, you're going to be somebody in Laodicea. And you see, being somebody was what we were all about before we came to Christ when we still loved ourselves. But you see, now we're followers of Christ and we've denied ourselves. But you see, that's not Laodicea, is it? Are y'all with me? And you see, I, you know, the, the thing that I hate about this is that it, it sounds so cynical. And, and I, hate, I, I, I hate being cynical. I really do, believe it or not. But that's where we are in Laodicea. I mean, that's about what it is, is it's the pursuit of self in the name of, of Jesus. We've, we've just changed the, the arena, and it leads to the, the next thing, and this is where we'll end this morning. The Laodicean problem of reformation without transformation. Reformation without transformation. You, you see, and, and really try to pull it in here as we, we try to pull all this together. What, what tends to happen to us in Laodicea, folks, is we end up reforming our behavior and we stop, we stop doing all kinds of sinful stuff that, you know, all that sinful stuff that we were doing before we were saved. And you see, because we stop doing that stuff, self likes that, man. Self feels good about itself because it doesn't do all those dirty, rotten, stinking, dirty things anymore. And, and like Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 24, we have all kinds of pride because we've gotten the outside of our cup looking really clean. And we've got all kinds of pride in Laodicea because we've got a fresh white washing on our, our sepulcher. But like Jesus said was true of the Pharisees, it is true of those of us in Laodicea. While we got clean cups on the outside and the whitewashing of the sepulcher on the outside that looks just wonderful, on the inside, we still are full of filth 
we're still full of, of dead men's bones and we've never dealt with the inside of our sepulcher. We've never dealt with the inside of, of our cup. And inside of us, in our desires, we've got full of, we're full of junk that is characteristic of exactly what was in there before we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, what, what happens to us, folks, is that self is blinded to all of that because no one else can see that. And since no one else can see it, then, you know, it, it's, it's not there. And, and I've been trying to hammer this point that I believe Jesus was constantly trying to, to hammer to the hypocritical Pharisees that the inside is really the issue of what Jesus was coming to do. And he kept telling these people, you emphasize the outside. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he, he looked at the group of people and he said, I'm telling you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not going to happen. And the people had to be going, oh, you've got to be kidding. Because, you see, they had the outside of their cup so clean. Jesus said, your, your righteousness has to exceed that. What he was trying to get them to see is the inside of the Pharisees stunk and that's what God wanted to deal with in this this salvation thing and what we've been trying to hammer and trying to make sure that we understand is that what salvation was and what salvation provided wasn't just a, a major dose of self-discipline so that we could stop doing all of these things that that we've always wanted to do in our bodies and the things that we did before that we were saved he didn't just give us the ability to reform our behavior. Salvation was supposed to be the transformation of the inside of us, of the desires of the inside. You see, this is the whole thing of what God was saying in Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. You don't need to turn. Just listen to it. It's Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. God says... A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And three verses later, he says, I will also save you from all your uncleannesses, including the inside. All your uncleannesses. It's the same exact thing. Wayne was talking about it a little earlier. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And somehow, I think that in God's mind, the all things that would become new had to do with the desires that were inside of us. And I'm just telling you, in Laodicea, folks, listen. There's a lot of reformation of behavior without the transformation of desire. And as long as the outside of our cup goes, and as long as we got that fresh whitewashing on our sepulcher, we're all right. And Jesus, when he talked to the group of people that emphasized that, said, You hypocrite. You hypocrites. And his Laodiceans. We better just, we better slow it down just a little bit. And make sure 
We don't have a profession without possession. And that we haven't just been rearranged, but we've been changed. And we haven't just been reformed, but that we've been transformed. Some of you in this room need to come and embrace the Jesus of this book who said that if you want to come after me, understand that it's a life of following me that begins with denying yourself. And some of you, that's exactly what needs to happen in your life. And others of us, and, and, and again, don't be too swift to go here. Others of us do know the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. And we're still jacking around with cleaning up the outside of our cup. <laughs> Pressing all this stuff down, all the stuff that we really want to do. But because we're saved now, we can't. And so by golly, I ain't going to do it now. I want to real bad. And our prayer life consists of, Oh God, help me not to do this when really what we could say is oh God help me not to do what I really want to do and Laodiceans are cool with that Laodiceans ain't concerned about the desire and I'm just saying to you the desire is still there because we haven't met the first prerequisite of following denying Self. Now understand, denying self is not rehabilitating self. It's obliterating self. It's where self is <coughs> wasted, obliterated. And that's why I'm not too anxious to get off of this. Because I can tell you folks, I am a Laodicean. And if you could see what God sees about me, you'd run out of this place. And if I could see what God sees probably in all of us, we wouldn't want to be around each other, would we? But somewhere along the way, don't you think us Laodiceans, in light of the things that the Lord is allowing us to see about all of this, don't you think that maybe we could come to the point to where we could become what God wants us to become? I just want to make sure that as we are the group of people that are raptured out of this place, that we, we look like a, a bride that is adorned and waiting for the groom. Let's bow our heads. Now, this, this morning, if, 
I don't care who you are. If, if, I don't care what everyone thinks about you around here. I don't care if you know, you're a charter member or deacon or pastor. If, if the Lord just keeps pounding you in this area, and, and every time that we get on this, he, he just says to you, you know what, one of these days you're going to have to humble yourself and really get the genuine item. If that's what he's saying to you, listen, while he's saying it to you, why don't you humble yourself? I, I, the purpose of all this is not to get you to doubt your salvation. It's just in light of everything that God said would be true in Laodicea. I just want to make sure that we all got it. Our pastors are going to be up on the front of the room. And we're not going to go through, you know, standing and playing the verse of invitation and all that stuff. You know, understand that that's, that's the way that men have invented to, you know, get people to respond to Jesus' invitation. That's not the way they did it in the Bible. And, and that, that's cool. I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at people to do it that way. I'm just saying to you, if God's spoken to you, you know that. And I believe that the Spirit of God, if He's convicted you, is big enough to, to get you to look for help. And, and I'm telling you, our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of the room here, waiting, positioning themselves for you, so that today you can, you can do business with God on His terms. And yet, my fellow Laodicean brothers and sisters, before we rush out of here to get back into the flow of life and eat our Sunday afternoon dinner, how about we just clear off a space and we confess first and foremost, I am a Laodicean. And while I can continue to convince myself that spiritually I'm rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing, God, you've shown me today that I am wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and I confess my condition to you, and I pray that I would have a genuine transformation of the desires. Give me that new heart, new spirit, it changes all of my uncleannesses, not just the ones that people can see, but the ones that you see. Oh God, please help me. To be something other than lay out a sea. Help this church to be something other than a lay out a sea church that you want to spew out of your mouth. Where you're knocking on the outside, desiring to come in, but we're having such a big time on the inside, we can't even hear you knocking. Help us. to humble ourselves and to still ourselves in this church long enough to hear you knocking, saying, I'd love to be a part of the, the worship. I'd love to be a part of what's going on in there.
Lord, we invite you to wear us out with your word. Help us, Lord, not to become dull of hearing. Help us to respond as you said to the to the Laodicean church period he that has ears to hear let him hear what the spirit says to the church and Lord give us ears to hear help us not to get so busy in this place we don't take the time to listen to what you're wanting to say about us and our lives. And I pray that today would be more than just a repackaging of, of ground. I pray that it would be a day that you, you got a hold of our hearts. Because of what you did, we were changed. again, Lord, please speak to the heart of lost people in this room today. I pray that they would come to you on your terms. In Jesus' name, amen.